There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg Kreminski and Colin Andrews. I never say our last names in the intro. No, you don't. Thanks for mentioning it. Yeah, today we're going to throw it out there. We're really pleased, Greg, to have a, I'm going to say a great guest join us today. Yep. He's a friend of the CM Group, a person who has presented for us multiple times over the past, a former guest of this show, and that is Shay Katria. Shay is joining us today. Shay is the Director of Investment Strategies North America with Russell Investments. And he last joined us, I want to say he last joined us, but he actually last joined me. That's right. In April of 2022, because you took that day off for some reason. I missed that day, I'm sorry to say, but uh, glad to be here for this one. Yeah, well, you know, we missed having you here, so we thought, why not ask Shay to come back? As a matter of fact, I'm going to call it right now, Greg, and say, this is the annual Shay Katria interview. Perfect. Okay, so we're going to have this going forward. So welcome back to the show, Shay. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, Greg. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. It was fun the last time, though. We were flying solo, so I feel like I'm in better hands today. No no offense, Colin. <laughs> oh, yeah, none taken at all. Yeah. No, no. That was, he, he did the best he could, really. Um, but, Shay, thanks again. And I went back, of course. I listened to last year's interview, and Colin rudely, I think, avoided asking you a little bit more about your background. So before we even... What? Di- well, I'm pretty sure. Uh, go check the transcript. Well, I haven't listened back a year, <laughs> but I'm going to go listen to it after this one. Okay, go on. I, I might be wrong. Who knows? Go on. But for the benefit of the listeners, Shay, why don't you just tell us a little bit about how you started and how you ended up where you are today with Russell Investments? Yeah, sure. It's been quite a while. Gosh, I'm going to time step myself. Uh, I've been with Russell with I believe, over 17 years, but it's been a great run. been in several different locations. I started my career at Russell in our New York office working as an analyst within the institutional team. So I worked with a lot of institutional clients back then. And I was there for about a few years, and then an opportunity had opened up in our Toronto office to work within the broader capital markets team there. And didn't realize it at the time, but I ended up spending 11 years in Toronto, which was amazing. Had a great time. It was a lot of fun. And I think back, what I wish I would have done was the skyline of Toronto when I first joined Russell in Toronto back in 2008, I believe it was, and the skyline when I left, which was 2019, so right before the pandemic. What a difference. So there's been so much growth. I think it's a reflection of what's happened in Canada, right, as far as real estate goes, and I'm sure we might be touching on that topic, but remarkable growth in the city, and it was a great time, and it's still a great city, but a great time to be there while we had that growth. Around 11 years there, work within the broader investment team, of course, not in isolation, but with the broader investment team, worked on and discussed the capital markets insights, our view on the Canadian economy, the outlook and all that good stuff. And then, as I said, 2019, we left and the family, we moved down to North Carolina. So North Carolina right now, moving in NC has been nice, for one. The weather is a bit milder here. In addition to that, just being in the U.S. now, I Working also a little bit more with our U.S. clients, but of course, still very much dialed in 
with the Canadian client. So yeah, it's been a nice journey so far. Hey, I want to ask you about, because you're in Charlotte, right? I'm in Raleigh. Raleigh, okay. Because Greg and I were in Charlotte, North Carolina a few years ago, pre-COVID, of course. A couple things stood out for me there. It was the NASCAR capital or the home of NASCAR. And I didn't realize that. And also the number of financial institutions that had head offices in Charlotte, North Carolina, of all places. That's got to be kind of a newer thing, isn't it? It's not that new, actually. So it's <laughs> kind of goes under the radar. But Charlotte has been, in terms of banking assets, if you will, second behind New York City. So wow. it has a pretty big presence within the broader U.S. banking system. The Bank of America, as an example, Bank of America is headquartered in Charlotte. So that's obviously a big hub there. And now, well, it was Bacovia, but then Wells Fargo now, Bacovia was headquartered in Charlotte. And then, of course, after the GFC, Bacovia was absorbed by Wells Fargo. So now Wells also has a pretty big presence in Charlotte. So yeah, it's pretty under the radar, but it does have a pretty big presence in, in finance in the U.S. Are there tax reasons why financial companies might headquarter there or just history? I think it's just history. If you compare overall from a taxation perspective, I should say, that could play a, a bit of a role because overall tax environment is a little bit more favorable, I would say, here in NC versus, let's say, New York City, right, which is mm -hmm. a higher cost state. So some of that could be playing in, but I think it's also history, right? When you have a big bank like Bank of America, it tends to also work as an anchor for other institutions to take a look at the city. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, before we dive into some questions where you're going to tell us exactly what's going to happen in the stock market for the next three to five years. Exactly um, what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Maybe just expand a little bit on what a director of North American strategies does on a day. Like, what does your day look like? It's a good question. I don't often get asked that, but uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for asking. A lot of my day is just staying on top of the markets, right? Just seeing what's happening what's going on, what's moving the markets at the moment, and how could that influence our outlook? As I said, I still work very closely with the Canadian team. I'm still responsible for drafting, let's say, our Canadian outlook and what have you, in conjunction with obviously the views of the broader Canadian investment team. So it's just staying on top of the markets, as well as communicating our views, similar to what we're doing today, just communicating our views at the moment and what could be influencing it, just things to keep an eye on and be watchful for, right? So a lot of client communications as we're doing right now, as well as staying on top of the markets and having a sense on how we could influence our outlook. And of course, bigger picture, what implications that could have on overall asset allocation decisions. Right on. Greg, can I take this next question? Please do. Okay, you mentioned GFC a few minutes ago, otherwise known as the Global Financial Crisis, for those that aren't familiar with that acronym. So there's been a ton of volatility the last two to three years, as evidenced from COVID and now the recent bank failures in the US and the Credit Suisse issue with takeover by UBS. Lots of people are asking us, are we headed towards another global financial banking crisis? That's question has been coming up a lot more in conversation these days, considering what's happened, as you, as you kind of mentioned, Colin. We do think it's a very different situation today than what transpired back in 2008. And it's, I think, probably a good place to start the broader outlook and make that distinction. So back in 2008, financial crisis, a lot of that was because of poor credit quality on the books of the U.S. banking system, which is not the case today. So what do we mean by poor credit quality? Well, a lot of the debt that was causing the problems for the banking system back then was related to subprime debt. So 
you might recall some of the acronyms that were used to be thrown out back then, the ninja loans, if you will, right? No income, no jobs, no problem. You'll get a loan. Anyone could qualify for a loan with minimal requirements, quite frankly. That resulted in a high proportion of the overall mortgages that were getting booked being qualified as subprime. So poor credit quality of mortgage originations. And then you had a situation where a lot of these mortgage debt was getting repackaged in investable instruments and then spread more broadly throughout the entire banking system. So the bank balance sheets were not nearly as clean as they might have been assumed to be at that point in time because of the subprime debt that was kind of like a cancer within the entire system and which ultimately brought down a lot of the banks as we kind of touched on in the beginning. And then the other thing I think that's an important distinction to make, poor credit quality, but also what made the U.S. economy more vulnerable back then was the fact that household debt was not nearly as clean as it is today. So household debt to disposable income back then reached, uh, I believe, around 140% or so. Currently, it's around 100%. So very different situation today on the household balance sheet side versus what it was back then. So poor credit quality, one, because of subprime, and two, an extremely leveraged household sector is what contributed to the unraveling that we saw back then, which is not the situation today, where yes, we've seen these bank runs. Obviously, Silicon Valley Bank is the one that comes to mind first and foremost. And the situation there isn't because they had poor credit quality, quite frankly. The issue that they had is not of credit, but it's more of duration. Market losses that they've been forced to realize because they needed to meet accelerating deposit withdrawals. And it was that disconnect between their asset side and their liability side and having to recognize these losses because of the fastest increases that we've seen by the U.S. Federal Reserve in about 40 years, right, is going to cause some volatility. And this is where we're starting to see that come through. So it wasn't, SVB wasn't a credit quality issue. The banks overall, more broadly, are in much better shape today than they had been back then. But it was really the vulnerabilities have been caused by the rapid rise in rates. The federal government's response has been a little different this time. And a lot of people say, oh, they're bailing out the banks again. But in the case of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, they're not really bailing out the banks, are they? They're helping the depositors in a way, but letting the banks, if the banks fail, they fail. Can you just maybe touch on the differences there in the response? That's right. What they are providing the backstop for are the depositors. So equity holders and predominantly the bondholders as well, will be wiped out. But it's really the depositors that are getting that security. And I think there's a couple of things that are worth pointing out in terms of the response that we've seen from policymakers, right? One is, and what you're referring to, Greg, is what the FDIC has done, right? Which is to stop bank runs. If the FDIC did not step in and did not provide that assurance, if you will, for not only those that are insured up to that 250000 cap, but basically did a backstop for all uninsured depositors. And this is an important point, why they did what they did with SVB, is you don't want a crisis of confidence, right? It's something that we've been saying. And confidence is so important. As we know, you know, what's the one thing that the markets dislike the most? It's uncertainty. Because once you have uncertainty, your conviction is less, you're less confident, and that's what creates the volatility. So you don't want the confidence to get shattered in the financial system, which is so important in commerce. The backstop that was essentially provided to just the deposit holders was to arrest that bank run and, and the fears that other banks would potentially be in a similar situation. And then the other thing in terms of what the Fed has done was to address liquidity concerns, because you don't want 
liquidity to morph into something much worse, insolvency or what have you, then the Fed stepping in and saying those that have this similar challenge that that SVB ran into in terms of mark-to-market losses, well, you could come to the Fed and post that collateral, if you will, right? These treasury securities. So these aren't subprime that we're talking about. These are treasury securities that have just been marked lower because of rates high, right? Rates go up, price of bonds go down. And that's what's happened with these treasuries. So they can go to the Fed and basically exchange it at par. So they don't have to realize that any haircut, therefore, won't have that liquidity crunch, if you will. So addressing the bank run and addressing liquidity was very important to do a bit of a containment, right? And Mm -hmm. something that we're saying is like quarantining the situation is really what they're after, not necessarily bailing out the entire financial system, which is, I don't think, a fair way to characterize it. Now, you mentioned a crisis of confidence, and I know that your focus in your job is North America, but it seems to me there's a contagion possibility globally. And with that Credit Suisse collapse or takeover by UBS, I was looking and Credit Suisse shares were actually down 90% in value since 2007. That's a big number, Greg, when a stock's down 90%. I don't know if you knew that. It is. Yeah, no, that's right. But there was an issue with the capital structure in that there was some of these AT1 or tier one capital bonds that ranked higher than equities in the capital structure of that bank, but the bondholders are left with nothing and the shareholders are receiving something. Is that an issue that we need to worry about for North American banks of tier one capital bonds that have been issued? Yeah, it's a good point. And it, quite frankly, it's been a head, head scratcher and I don't really have even a great response for you in terms of all the nuances, but it did seem like the situation with these AT1 or alternative tier one capital holders that essentially got wiped out is unique to just the Swiss banking situation because it seems like there was some, again, I'm no expert with these credits, but it seems like there was what they're calling sort of a viability event where if the public sector did have to step in to ensure the viability of the firm, they could do what they did, right? Which is write down the AT1 capital, which is rather unusual because everywhere else and the assumption before this would have been that the AT1 does rank above equity holders. So it is strange. But then what we have seen um, just over the last couple of days, we've seen the ECB come out, even OSFI has come out here in Canada. So we've seen policymakers come out and say that this is sort of a unique situation in terms of what's happened with Credit Suisse. That's not the situation as it relates to other banking jurisdictions. So I think we can take some comfort in that the AT1 holders should be ranked higher than, let's say, equity holders, which clearly didn't really happen. So it'll be interesting to see. I don't think that story is dead in the water now. I'm sure there'll be litigation and, and what have you, as you'd expect there to be, because the assumption was this is not how things should have played out. So we'll see what happens. I don't think the story is over just yet. But I think based on what we've heard from policymakers outside of Switzerland, I think there's been an effort made to make sure that what happened in Switzerland stays in Switzerland. Of course, a lot of these things, as they come up, they always seem unforeseen. And then after the fact, everyone can look back and say, oh, well, you should have seen that coming. So now we get to the tough part where you get to polish up the crystal ball. And could you give us the lay of the land as it pertains to, let's say, the economy and markets and and just how does Russell, I'm not going to pin this all on you, how does Russell see things unfolding here over the next 12 to 24 months? I think that's obviously what's most important is the path forward from where we are today. Clearly, there is a lot of tension. There is a lot of volatility in the markets. 
Our view, even before this whole SVB situation and Credit Suisse situation came just over the last couple of weeks, leading up to this, our view was that central banks have done enough. We know the Bank of Canada, they've pretty much gone on a conditional hold and they're not looking to move. They want to see how the Canadian economy responds as a result of the lagged effects of prior tightening. And obviously, they have one eye on inflation, but they also have the other eye on the housing market, which is probably why they went officially on hold. The first major developed central bank to go on hold, put policy on pause. A lot of that has to do with the housing market. For the Fed, though, our view was that they'd done enough. It's one thing what we think that they should do, and then another what we think that they will do, right, uh, is also a distinction that we've been trying to make. And our view was that if the neutral rate, which is sort of the theoretical rate that is neither too hot nor too cold, is around 2.5%. That's sort of our view. You know, we'll use rough numbers. And if it's around 2.5%, quite frankly, isn't that all that different from what the Fed themselves are saying is roughly neutral rate. The top end of the Fed rate right now, and we're actually recording this just before the Fed meeting later today, but the consensus is that they'll hike one more time. So let's assume that they do. Whether they do or do not doesn't really matter, right? They've already done so much. So whether they hike a couple more times is sort of a moot point at this point in time. But let's just assume they do another 25 basis points. So you've got the upper end to five. If the neutral is two and a half, you're double what the theoretical speed limit is. So you're going on overdrive right now. And our view was that there's been enough already done to slow the economy. We know the policy works with the lag. The first shoe to drop usually in the most interest rate sensitive parts of the economy is housing. And we've already seen housing slow down, whether it's the US or Canada for that matter. It doesn't matter. We've seen that. And obviously, the situation that's occurred with SVP and Signature Bank and other regional bank, the volatility there is another indication that they've done a lot, right? So before the SVB scenario, the Chair Powell and company were talking pretty hawkish, pretty aggressive in terms of raising rates further, but probably this situation might change things a bit. So it'll be interesting to see the language that they assign at the policy meeting and what they say. But our view is that, again, they've done enough. Now, if they do a couple more, it doesn't really matter because we do believe that the path for the economy over the next 12 to 18 months, and this would be for the US as well as for Canada, is a recession. Now, recession always causes some fears to people because no one likes recession. Recession means job losses, but it's sort of a necessary evil. A recession comes along and it helps release some of the excesses that we're building up in the system. Again, it's never comfortable. No one likes to see job losses and what have you and some of the volatility that comes with it. But it is a necessary evil to kind of reset the system. So we do think that there will be a recession, let's say 12 to 18 months. But I think it's also worthwhile saying well, is that Getting back to, I guess, what, Colin, your first question, which was the difference between 2008, this is not 2008. So we do expect, especially in the US, a milder recession in a large part because, yes, right now we have this tension with the banks, but most important, let's not forget, for the US economy, roughly 70, 75% is consumer based and household balance sheets are in, in a much better situation today. The housing market is still pretty tight. So therefore, we do expect a milder recession. Looking at things sort of, you know, glass half full, if you will. But that's sort of the path that we do see the US and Canadian economy headed in is for a recession over the next 12 to 18 months. And in a perverse way, what's happened with SVP and the situation with the banks may mean that the Fed doesn't need to do more than let's, let's again, we're making assumptions that they'll do one more. One of the implications of what's happened with the regional banks in the US is that financial conditions will also be getting tighter because the regional banks will be 
raising their credit requirements and tightening credit standards and what have you, which had already been taking place. And that trend is just going to get accelerated as a result of what's happened. So you've got the banks now probably tightening financial conditions in an accelerated way while you still have rates which are still very high, as we said, well above theoretical neutral rate. Conditions are tight enough, in our view, to cause a slowing, a material slowing in the economy to take us into a recession. Let me ask a question, Greg, that having said all that, having heard all that, most of our clients these days ask things like, okay, with inflation higher than normal, higher than normal interest rates, a stock market that was in a bear market last year, maybe it's out of it now, I don't know. Should we be doing something different? And that's a question, Greg, do you get that question? I get that question from people all the time. Should we be doing something different? I don't want to put you on the spot too much, Shay, but what's the number one thing investors should be doing now, given what you just said? A former colleague would always say that doing nothing is also an active decision. And by do nothing, what that means is you stick to your plan. You don't need to make any reactionary changes. And I think that's an important point, which we kind of lose, because usually when there is volatility, that's when clients and investors want to make changes because you feel like you need to do something. But that's not necessarily the case. If you have a sound plan, well, that's what's most important. That's what will guide you through the volatility, right? And that's why we have plans, right? And that's why it's so important to work with financial professionals, quite frankly, because left to your own devices, you know, we can highlight lots of studies that show that we don't always tend to make the best decisions. That's, I think, a very important point, first and foremost. Now, that all being said, 2022, I think, is an important sort of reference point to talk about as it relates to this topic. 2022 was a difficult year from an asset allocation perspective, in a large part because not only were stocks down, but bonds were down. And that's sort of counterintuitive because you always think, well, bonds are supposed to be that safe haven, that ballast in your portfolio and help to offset the volatility that comes through from the equity market side of things. But like we talked about, what's been very unique in this cycle is the speed at which the Fed raised rates. And that is what caused the bond market to also experience a lot of gyrations last year. But we're past that, right? Now we're actually talking about recession probabilities being a little bit higher. We're talking about the Fed now perhaps getting to a point where they could come to a pause soon and potentially cut rates if we are headed to a recession. It's not about rate hikes anymore. What we should be talking about, well, what's the time frame for rate cuts, which could potentially happen if the recession view comes to fruition, then you could actually see rate cuts by the end of the year as well. Bank of Canada, the Fed, it's plausible, right, if that recession outlook comes to fruition. So if that is indeed the case, then we're in a sort of a different regime in 2023 versus 2022. And we're actually starting to see that play out. And why we say, you know, sticking to plan is important is because We think diversification, which seems like it didn't really help us last year, will help us this year. We do think that bonds will play that role of portfolio ballast this year, and we're seeing evidence of that already. So sticking to plan, I think, is the most important thing. Having that diversification to bonds along with having some exposure to equities, obviously it'll be volatile, but there is uncertainty in the outlook and things may not progress as we say. The crystal ball is always a little cloudy. (laughs) So this is the interesting thing, right? Before SVB, and you guys might have heard this as well, right? There was all these discussions. Well, is it going to be a soft landing, hard landing? And then there was a snow landing, right? This perfect situation where you have a continued sort of Goldilocks kind of environment. That was never our view. And our view was for, for a recession. 
but let's entertain that possibility that you do get this no landing. Well, in that scenario, you could see equities continue to move higher, right? So you don't want to abandon your plan is what I'm trying to say. We think sticking to plan is the most important thing. And I guess maybe a more higher conviction view that we would have right now is that we do think that bonds should do better in the environment that we're seeing, that we're heading into. I heard a saying last week, patience is not in action. And that's basically what you're saying. Yeah. Well, and for sure. And we've had this discussion as the coach of the team that was expected to do better and hasn't been doing well has to get fired just because (laughs) you have to take action. And the post-firing results usually indicate that that was a mistake. And we try to encourage investors the same way. And coming off a tough year, as you say, for bonds, I mean, we've had many people say, well, gee, bonds have done so poorly. Should we sell our bonds now? And to us, it's like, well, you've suffered the pain. Why would you not hang around for the pleasure part where bonds actually perform better? Mm -hmm. We talk about starting yields are a pretty good indication of future expected returns on bonds. And yields are a whole lot better today than they were a year and a half ago. So we're with you on that one, Shay. Mm -hmm. I mean, we absolutely preach constantly that having a plan, sticking to it, rebalancing, and focusing on bigger life goals rather than the day-to-day gyrations of the markets mm-hmm. is probably the best strategy. So thanks for thanks for supporting us on that one. Yeah, and telling people like, listen, go do something that brings you pleasure. Don't worry about the market right now. The market's going to do what it's going to do. But Greg, we got to wrap this up with you. We've, we, we do. We, We've we, taken we a lot a, of his time already. We need a quick speed round to finish off just okay. because that's fun. Right on. So Shay, you did all the heavy lift and this is just fun now. All right. So first, easy one. What do you do when you're not working? What do you do for fun? Ah, good question. (laughs) I like to travel. Haven't been doing a whole lot of that. So looking to do a little bit more and just spending time with family. That's, I think, what I'm looking forward to. Like you head down to Charlotte and check out the NASCAR museum? (laughs) That's right. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I wish you some Canadian-specific ones for Shay. Sure. Start. You know what? He's got a head start on this because he lived in Toronto for 11 years. But I'm going to give you the token one that we always ask our U.S. guests, which is, do you know what a toque is? Now, you got to know this, Shay. You lived in Toronto for 11 years. Yeah. You went through many winters where it was cold on your head. And you probably wore a toque. A toque. Yeah. So... I know this is going to be horrible. He's forgotten already. You've been oh. in North Carolina too long. That's right. That's right. Yeah, the toque, you know, the, the, the woolly hat with the pom-pom on the top. That's, that's right. That's the toque. That's a toque. Or a beanie, okay. as you would call yeah, it. They, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You'll have to start calling it a beanie a now beanie that you're, there. you're back south. Yeah, there you yeah. go. <laughs> okay, one more, Greg. Um, well, this that'll be too easy. Uh, okay, KD. KD, what is that short for? KD to be found very commonly in university dormitories or in student housing. Initially, I thought, you know, this was a basketball reference. I was going to say Kevin Durant, but clearly that's not the case. It's a food. It's a food. This is a food item. KD. A a cheaper staple food that university students would buy. We're going to give it to you. In the States, it's called macaroni and cheese, Kraft macaroni and cheese. And in Canada, it's known as Kraft dinner or KD. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. Right. So you're, what did, yeah. I got a qu- last question. For you. What did you do in that 11 years in Toronto? <laughs> if you don't know what a toque is or a KD? Well, I was, I was remember, joking. Remember, he was working at Russell. He didn't have to eat KD. That's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I was too busy looking at the markets, clearly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Well, thanks again, Shay. That was a lot of fun. We appreciate you coming on and as always being a great resource for us, for our clients. We're going to see you next week in Calgary. Bring your toque. It's probably going to be cold. I'll bring my beanie. And uh, yeah, anything else, Greg? No, that's it. Just thanks again and uh, look forward to seeing you shortly. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. Do subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.